This is Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast, episode number 101. Today, our special guest is Dr. Joe Shapiro. We talk with Joe about strategies to support the emotional well being of healthcare clinicians. Don't go away. Hi, healthcare leaders. I'm Tracy Christofferson. And I'm Michelle Trosett. We're your hosts for Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast, and we are so grateful you joined us today. You're about to see healthcare problems and challenges through a brand new lens and take your leadership to a whole new level with this podcast. We've coached healthcare leaders from across North America for over 30 years as they strive to establish healthy healing organizations and thriving work cultures. This is the only podcast that shows healthcare leaders how to apply polarity thinking, the missing logic in healthcare to their reoccurring challenges so they can stop wasting time, money, and resources on fixes that fail. If you want to create a healthy healing organization where staff and leaders thrive and perform at their highest level, where values are aligned, outcomes are sustainable, and the highest quality of care is delivered, then this podcast is for you. Keep listening. Each week, you're going to learn how to leverage a polarity mindset and manage competing priorities as we use a polarity lens to explore everyday challenges with the leaders who are striving to manage them. We're thrilled you're here. Welcome back, everybody. It's Michelle. And Tracy, here we are. Another awesome episode of Health Care's Missing Logic podcast. Yes, this one is so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's so important that this podcast happened because it almost didn't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, we're big into God winks, universe nods, whatever you want to call them. You know, we try to pay attention to the messages that we get. Now, sometimes our brains are a little thicker (laughs) than other times, Uh, but we actually got clued into this guest, March of 2020. I hate to tell you, maybe we had some, maybe had some COVID fog. Maybe that's what it was, right? Just, but we were first introduced to the thought of having this individual on our podcast back in March of 2020, when a dear colleague of ours, Dr. Karen Pittman, I'm going to call you out. Yes, she said, Hey, you got to listen to this podcast. This doctor, she's a, you know, a colleague of mine. And this is a phenomenal interview. There's a great alignment with what you're doing. And I listened to it. I'm like, yeah, we should. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then Dr. Karen Pittman sent us, uh, well, she told us about an article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, there it was again. You should really talk to her. She should be a guest on your podcast. <laughs> so, so she made it. the list. <laughs> <laughs> Took place. Thank you, Karen, for being persistent and, and recommending we speak with Dr. Joe Shapiro because we just had an incredible interview with her. Wouldn't you say? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Total kindred spirits with her for sure. A lot of alignment and in uh, how we serve individuals and organizations. And she's so knowledgeable, just has just such a great spirit about her. I can see she probably lifts a lot of people up every day, right? Yeah, yeah, very authentic. Yeah, very authentic. Yeah, Yeah, so um, let me introduce Dr. Joe Shapiro to you. And we even had a conversation about this. So during the interview, you're gonna notice we call her Joe. 
but we asked permission to do that. We wanted to honor who she is as a physician. And, and uh, we're going to introduce you to Dr. Joe Shapiro here. And uh, she is an associate professor of otolaryngology and head and neck surgery at Harvard Medical School. She is senior faculty for the Center of Medical Simulation in Boston. Now, in 2008, she founded the Brigham and Women's Children or Brigham and Women's Hospital Center for Professionalism and Peer Support, where she served as a director for over 10 years. During that time, the center became a model for national and international institutions seeking methods to enhance a culture of trust and respect and improve clinician well-being. She continues to educate and assist organizations in developing specific programmatic and educational approaches, such as peer support, well-being programs, professionalism initiatives, and conflict management. Dr. Shapiro served as chair of the Ethics and Professionalism Committee of the American Board of Medical Specialties and has had multiple educational leadership roles, including Senior Associate Director of Medical of Graduate Medical Education for Partners of Healthcare, Founding Scholar of the Academy at Harvard Medical School, and President of the Society of University Otolaryngologists. Wow. She was one of Brigham Women's Hospital's first women division chiefs. Wow. Go. <laughs> she serves on the faculty of the Harvard Leadership Development for Physicians and Scientists, where she teaches giving difficult feedback. She was a faculty member of the Department of Surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital for over 35 years. Her surgical expertise was in treating adults with oral pharyngeal dysphagia. She was named as a finalist for the Schwartz Center Compassionate Caregiver Award. And in, 20, in 2019, Harvard Medical School gave her the Shirley Driscoll Dean's Award for the Enhancement of Women's Careers. Go, Joe. Yes. Congratulations. Without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Joe Shapiro. Well, welcome, Joe. We are so excited to have you on our podcast. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're so welcome. You're so welcome. And, you know, we've kind of had you on our wish list for quite a while. That <laughs> is very kind. That. <laughs> but we were first introduced to you through a friend of ours who is also in your field as an otolaryngologist and head and neck surgeon, Dr. Karen Pittman. And she was like, oh, I just heard Dr. Shapiro on this podcast. You got to listen to this. You're going to love it. You guys are kindred spirits. And so we listened to the podcast and then we saw your article come out just a little bit ago and we fell in love with that too. <laughs> it's like, oh man, she's talking our language. So we're so excited that you're here. Finally, finally, it's happened. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, she's such a great colleague of mine. So it's, yeah. it's an honor to have been re uh, referred yeah. by her. Yeah. She continues to refer you every time she sees anything. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so when I first heard you speak, it was on that podcast, which is a podcast that's specific to your field. But you were sharing your experience with COVID. You actually had it early on in, in the first surge, I believe. Is that right? Yes, I did. Very early. It was the first week of March of, uh, of last year, 2020. And um, I had traveled to 
uh, I think this is where I got it. It's the only way I can figure out that I might have, which is I had, I did peer support training, which I do a lot of, but this, I was doing it in person back then. And I was traveling out to Ohio and I traveled through New York and spent a lot of time in the airport and in a small plane uh, as part of one leg of the journey. And I think that's where I got it anyway. I, was, I got sick enough that I had a bag pack for the hospital, although I didn't end up having to go in. But it really was impressive, I have to say. And I'm very grateful that I recovered fully, as did my husband. And so no long-term complications. Wow. It's amazing, you know, and I, I'm so grateful yes. <laughs> that you, that you don't have any long-term effects like that. Is there anything that you would want to share with our listeners that just speaking from having a personal experience with it, that you might want them to know or to think about when it comes to COVID? Maybe just that, um, I think not that I or anyone needs COVID uh, or to be getting sick to remind ourselves of, uh, of our mortality. I would just say that. It's so important just to remember that, you know, we're to be grateful for what we do have and to be empathic about those of us who, you know, when, when we are sick, but honestly, I don't think that's necessarily a, a huge uh, newsflash for anybody. I think we, we do, but there is nothing like getting sick to, um, to really, I think, make one grateful for what one does have and also to be empathic to those who are suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, such variation in how people experience it. Yes, very true. So I think, so I think really that's so true. important, you know, for some hardly have any symptoms and they're over very quickly and others have long, long lasting symptoms. Well, yes, that is true. And one thing that happened to me, which is um, just so ironic, given my focus of my career in the last dec- over a decade, which is the well-being of uh, and peer support, and um, you really take the importance of uh, of, of ha- being supported and self-care, so that we can have a, a long-lasting career, and and also because we deserve to, because we're humans, um, is that I absolutely, when I was starting to get sick, and then kept getting sicker and sicker. I absolutely did not practice what I preached. I I really did not. I was very much, um, into the, uh, I have to take care of other people. A lot of people were reaching out to me at that point for peer support and helping programs develop peer support, uh, organizations develop peer support programs in the face of this pandemic that was clearly increasing and going to be affecting people. And so I was like, I'm so needed. I, I really have to do these peer support sessions and you know take care of these groups and people. And, and I was completely neglecting my my own degree of in severity of illness. And um, until my family and colleagues were, you know, kind of held up a mirror saying, you're not doing the very thing you're telling other people yeah. to do that you've been always encouraging other people to do. So it was a good lesson in how yeah. strong the culture is that prevents our getting support and getting care. I am an expert in this. If I was following that old culture of just keep working and working and it's all about other people and our own needs don't matter, then like I think most people, (laughs) you could see why it's just so powerful. I guess that's what I I really took from this. And having, I called, I I was kind of a knucklehead (laughs) around (laughs) not doing what I, I I was telling others to do. And so that really did also really, really leave a big impression on me, which is we, we need to do more of this and we need to really, really consistently work on 
limiting those structural and cultural barriers to um, to actually realizing that we are human and we deserve care and support. Oh, thanks for sharing that. It just shows you that that side of our humanist too. We know we're always wanting to, you know, take care of others and care for others. And that's a powerful example of how ingrained we are. And we neglect ourselves in the process. Yeah. That's the kicker, right? Yes. Right. <laughs> it, it is the kicker. It is. And, and we used to think, you know, before we had all this data around burnout and depression and, and you know, physician suicide, yeah. um, we actually really thought that that was the right thing to do. That, that, you know, we went into the healing profession because it was all about denying our own needs um, and that we are we signed up for this and we're not supposed to hurt or, uh, or feel. We're certainly not supposed to get sick, but, <laughs> but even if we're witnessing and experiencing other people's illness and, you know, some of the, the, the huge stressors uh, and traumas that we, as part of our job is to be there for other people, we thought that in order to be successful, do what we wanted to do, we had to ignore our own needs. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sure, you know, in the moment, yeah, I mean, come on, we've got work to do. I can't in the middle of a, you know, resuscitation or in the middle of an operation start to yep. really be in touch with, you know, I'm kind of emotionally drained right now, right? No, not at all. Uh, but forever, right? Forever yeah. not to, to process what I'm going through or what we're going through. That's as it turns out, not only not a great idea, but it's a bad idea not to yeah. process. It's, it actually causes problems. And yep. we just didn't know that. We really didn't. And now right. we do. We're becoming enlightened. <laughs> we are. We are. So Joe, you're really well known for your passion for professionalism and the peer support programs you just mentioned. Um, tell our listeners what led you down that path. Well, I had the opportunity to have lots of different leadership roles when I was at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I also worked for Mass General Brigham as a a GME leader for those two big organizations. And, uh, um, you know, I was division chief for, for at the Brigham for otolaryngology. Anyway, I had those experiences. I was having those experiences as a leader and also practicing surgery and doing a lot of training and teaching at the medical school. And I was just struck, this was years ago, by the, I guess what I'd call suffering of those of us doing the work, right? That people around me who were dedicated educators and clinicians and researchers, and people just seem to really be suffering. And I had such a different vantage point, given these roles and my experience and, uh, um, and having been at the, these institutions for a long, long time. And I thought, this can't be good. It can't be right that we don't think about or care about uh, each other. And, and it wasn't because any one organization or my institution was any different from any of the other healthcare organizations that I've had the privilege of, of working with um, over, the, the, over the years of my career. This was the culture of medicine. And it just struck me as bad and, and needing, needing change also wanting to hold on to the great things about our culture and medicine, like the mm-hmm. fact that we're healers and how dedicated mm-hmm. we are and all those good things. It doesn't mean letting go of those. It means supporting those. And also then looking at other aspects of the culture that are really not, are not serving uh, our purpose in terms of actually being able to be there for our patients and each other and to sustain our careers. And it was just around the time where the very beginning of some of the research was coming out. 
around mm. the lack of well-being and burnout just around that time. I didn't really have a lot of that to use in, in terms of making the argument for we need to do this, but it was starting and, um, and I was seeing it. And so it really got me thinking about, well, what are the aspects of our organizations that we could influence and change to improve, to support the parts of the culture that we care about and are wonderful, and then to just really get rid of the ones that aren't. And also, uh, I've always been interested in organizational change. That's why Mm -hmm. I've loved my leadership positions. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I wanted to to use my experience and, and to learn more about organizational change around the culture of medicine that affects the well-being of those who are working in healthcare. So that's what really inspired me. It wasn't one incident or one thing. And in fact, when I started the Center for Professionalism and Peer Support, when I pitched it to the then president of the hospital, which was Gary Gottlieb, my pitch was, I know you and we all care about these things like our well-being and, and patient safety and all the other things that, that, that this culture affects. If we care about it, we really need to actually have programs, organizational levers to make these changes. Mm-hmm. It can't just be in each of us individually has to just get better <laughs> and, and, and stay well, right? That's not going to work. And we now know, of course, now we have some more data showing that organizational approaches to well-being are the most effective um, versus telling everybody to go train for a marathon and deep breathe and cook their own nutritional meals. <laughs> not that those are bad things. They're good things, but mm-hmm. that's that can't be it. It, it. it just isn't enough. And so I was able to pitch this to him because he, and he really d- did care about all of this and also was, uh, had a lot of experience around obviously leadership and, and organizational uh, change work. And so that's how I, I pitched it, which was that we need to do programs. This can't yeah. just be a campaign, a, you know, a, mi- a change in mission statement. And I'm, I'm a surgeon, you know, I'm super practical. It's like, we need to actually do things that will get us along more along the road that we want to be traveling on. And so that's how I, I got to actually starting a center and then working with multiple other healthcare organizations nationally and internationally to uh, learn with them and also teach them some things that I, I had learned in doing this work. Awesome. Well, kudos for you for taking action on, you know, really recognizing something has to change and for, and, you know, for taking that inspired action and look at the outcome and all the people's lives that you've touched now. I think that's a incredible. Oh, thank you. Again, I, I'll always refer to myself as, as yeah. being a surgeon because it's so baked into who I am. But I, I felt like we have to, we absolutely have to literally do something. It, it can't be more talk about it. It just yes. can't be. It can't. Yeah. And there are things to do. And I think, you know, in academic medicine, um, this is sort of the good part and the bad part of academic medicine is there can, it can be very slow. Um, and just generally, um, we know there's data showing that when you take scientific discovery, there's a huge uh, years and years and years of a gap between what scientists tell us, yeah. you know, our clinician scientists and, and basic scientists tell us about the right care and actually translating that, you know, into what we do for people. And, you know, I have this incredible level of impatience, which is, was translated into, look, 
we do have data, and I did research that supported this, that shows that we need to do these programs. Now, of course, we don't have data showing that this is the best way to do it, and there'll never be a best way. There's got to be a lot of ways of moving forward on this, or that this way is going to cause less downstream things like less suicide, you know, better retention, morale, productivity. These are very hard to measure. And, you know, sometimes people want proof that what you want to do is going to be, have all these uh, positive outcomes and you can't give that to them. So I think there is a hesitance to, to do things without all of the data. And of course we know that you know, sometimes you have to do things and then get the data about them. Uh, but we had, we did have data showing, you know, proof of concept. This is what people want. So let's build programs around uh, what the research has shown people actually do want. And also there's a lot of data on how, not doing anything, which is the status quo, has been hurting us. Yes. And so, uh, you know, I have this, I was like, well, let's just do this. We, let's do it and we'll learn. It will be iterative. It's not going to be written in stone like this is the, and it's not going to be the only way. There are going to be right. lots of different, interesting, innovative ideas. Awesome. The Nike approach to academic medicine. Let's just do it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. well, as they say with surgeons, fire, ready, aim. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it's not going to hurt. Yeah. Anything that you do to improve somebody's well-being, is not going to hurt. Yes. It's right. only going to help. Now, it's the extent to which it's going to help, right? Yes. That's what we're not quite certain of, but it's only going to get better. It can't make it worse. You know, that's really interesting, Tracy, because one of the things that uh, I've argued around um, peer support in particular is that, you know, there's, there is some risk that these conversations might legally, you know, cause problems. And uh, the way that we sorted that out was, it was looking at risk benefit, you know, to your point, the risk of these causing harm is just theoretical and tiny, but we should look at them and, and, and the risk of not doing it, we already have, it's huge. We have that data. And so, you know, if you look at this as a surgical uh, approach, it's risk benefit. Um, Yeah. Right. What are the chances of these causing harm? And, you know, looking at that and making sure we pay attention to that. And what are the chances if we don't do it of causing harm? And we do, as I say, plenty of data showing doing nothing is not neutral. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So in the fall of 2020, you and Dr. Timothy McDonald wrote a perspective article in the New England Journal of Medicine. I have it in my hot little hands right here entitled Supporting Clinicians During COVID-19 and Beyond, Learning from Past Failures and Envisioning New Strategies. And we already heard about your passion for combating burnout, and there has to be a better way. Tell us a little bit about how the article came about. Well, I've had um, the opportunity through Tom Gallagher, who's, who's just such a champion of, of, of many things uh, uh, that do relate to well-being and really also how we, how we communicate with patients after adverse events. Through Tom Gallagher, um, I had met and worked with Tim McDonald, and, and Tom knew that we both really were working hard on these issues and from you know, slightly different vantage points. And he actually suggested that we think about writing this article because what we had both discussed with him was, and he knows quite well, was so many of the initiatives that people have been trying to do hadn't and and were having problems landing with the people who they were designed for. And really the purpose of the article was to look at that. Like, why are some of the things that hospitals and other healthcare organizations uh, are doing 
aren't actually don't actually end up serving those who who need to be served by them. And that's where that re- that really came from is we really wanted to put that out there based on our experience and the, and the literature around there's so many good-hearted efforts and many of them aren't getting getting utilized. Well, you talk in the article about some strategies. So, would you mind sharing with our um, with our listeners like what do you think institutions can do, right, to better support the clinician's emotional well-being. So I think it, it in some ways is based on uh, stepping back and saying, what are we doing and why isn't it working? Why are so, for example, a, a mental uh, and behavioral health programs, which are can be absolutely wonderful, um, in, in many ways are un, can be and are underutilized by certain groups, especially physicians. And w- so, when you design a program, you have to look at what those cultural and structural barriers are that prevent utilization of good programs. And that's where the, for us, the idea of peer support came into being. And again, uh, uh, we had worked quite separately in these realms, but uh, in parallel um, is the peer support is a way of providing support and offering it proactively so that two things, one is we don't wait for clinicians to suffer when they've been uh, exposed to traumatic events or acute or chronic stressors, we actually offer it to them. So why wait till people are suffering till they are actually having, you know, major behavioral uh, health problems or physical health problems. And also destigmatizing the offer so that the chances of accepting the support increase. And then, you know, thirdly, actually um, for those who, do and deserve and want further help using peer support to connect others with professional help like uh, people in mental health, um, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, social workers, people who who do this work and can do it on a longitudinal basis. So that's that's really the first thing is thinking about what do you have already in your organization and um, is it being utilized? And I think if you, if you really study it, you'll see probably underutilized in particular by physicians, not exclusively, but in particular, and then um, changing the programs so that they uh, destigmatize and take, and, and take away the barriers like confident, you know, the, this fear of confidentiality breaches and adverse um career consequences from accepting the support. So I think that's, of course, now my lens um, in particular, I have two major interventions that I think are important. I mean, probably more than that, but the two I think that stand out for me is important are one, the peer support, which is again, a way it was designed to bridge the, um, the need with the access to that support. And the other is what I would call professionalism, which I've defined as behaviors that support a culture of trust. So I think we we know from the literature that one of the things in organizations that uh, increases burnout and that really decreases well-being is when there are there isn't that kind of trust between, uh, especially really between healthcare team members or between the leaders and the, the those uh, uh, who are who they're leading, and when that trust is undermined, um, it, it it's it's it is very it's a it's a serious challenge to our well-being, and so. 
the other thing I think that organizations can do is to look at what are they doing to support a culture of trust, to support um, uh, people in, even though we're in, in, in stressful situations in, in healthcare, for sure, clinically, especially, um, have we taught people to manage conflict in a way that actually strengthens relationships and doesn't tear them down? And those are these these organizational interventions around professionalism are really challenging and so so important because they when they're not addressed, um, the rest of the things that the organization does with all the uh, you know focus on productivity and um, and you know kind of like you. You got to work harder and longer, and uh, and yet we're going to you know give you more things that you have to do. Uh, it, people really start to get disengaged, and it, and and so I think again, focusing on how do we treat each other, how and how do we work within groups, between groups, uh, leadership to uh, followership, those sorts of things, I think is really really important. And there's lots of ways to to, to uh, programmatic initiatives that you can do to actually address this. It's not just a big theoretical thing. We couldn't agree with you more and have been doing work for over 30 years of creating healthy work cultures. And if you, to your point, if you don't address the underlying culture and the infrastructures and the principles that support it, you'll never move forward. Right. For sure. For sure. Michelle, exactly. And you all are experts in leadership training. And it's that kind of and and not just like obviously it's not how to balance, you know, the the budget. It's it's relational leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you lead in a way that that promotes to me? I I use the word trust because I think it's so foundational. Um, But, you know, I think we're exactly on the same page. And you know that it's it is about a relationship development. Hey, it's Michelle, and we're going to get right back to this episode, but I had to interrupt really quick and let you know the doors to our new self-study program, Caring for Others Without Neglecting You, is open for enrollment. We know, especially right now, with everything your team has been through this past year, that you want to do all you can to support them, help them to recover and be resilient and even experience joy in their work again and they need your support. If you are like most healthcare leaders we talk to, you may have been overwhelmed, exhausted and stressed before the pandemic and things aren't getting any better. They're getting worse. So it's easy to see that if you don't prioritize caring for you, you won't have anything left to give to your team. So stop neglecting you and go over to missinglogic.com forward slash new dash events to learn more and enroll today. You mentioned that when it comes to peer support, I think one of the benefits you mentioned was, right, destigmatizing what individuals are experiencing and asking for help, right? That, that That's a, a big uh, issue. So are there some other benefits of the peer support as well that you would want to mention? Yes, I think so. Um, it, there's such, I want to say, it's not really a culture of isolation, but because of, uh, of in, in many ways, structure and culture, um, uh, healthcare providers are, are feeling more and more isolated from each other. And that somewhat is not going to change because it, the way medicine is practiced so different from, you know, when I trained in many, many years of my practice, um, where we saw each other more, there was much more 
collegiality in the sense of, you know, really just talking about patients and talking about our lives and socializing. And this, we all, we can't turn back the clock. It, it, medicine is much faster paced and the structure and, uh, of the organizations have changed. And that's okay. I can accept that because it has had some positive sides to it. But I think we have to look at what has been lost and try to find a different way to create that. And so, like I said, we know uh, that, you know, isolation causes acute and chronic stress. So one of the benefits about uh, of peer support is when you're reaching out to say, you know, hi, you know, Michelle, I'm, I'm reaching out as a peer supporter uh, because we reach out to anybody who's dealing with uh, such and such acute or chronic stressor. And the reason we do is because I and every colleague I know has been involved in something like this. And some of us find it helpful mm-hmm. to talk about it with a colleague. Is that something you'd like to do? So that's the, the peer support invitation. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying in that is I'm saying you're not alone, right. right? You're not alone in number one, experiencing whatever it was that you experienced, let's say, you know, an adverse event. And number two, you're not alone in maybe having had some feelings about it that can be helpful to talk to a colleague about. So this, I think it really combats isolation. And the other thing is that you know, if you have a peer support program, even if the person you offer peer support to says, you know what, I'm good, you know, but, you know, thanks for reaching out. They know that the organization is resourcing a program that cares about them, mm-hmm. right? That cares about them and their well-being and isn't singling them out because they're weak or they're, they did something horrible. It's because we need to because we are all at at, at one time or another vulnerable as we should be, because if we didn't care, then, you know, that would be horrible. (laughs) Um, So Mm -hmm. having emotions in reaction to these acute and chronic stressors is just shows how human and caring we are, not Mm -hmm. that we're weak because we're vulnerable. And so just knowing there's a program, I think tells people that the organization has some respect and caring for me. And I think the other is being able to connect people, as I said, with further resources if they, if they desire them. And it's very hard to convince, uh, especially physicians that it's safe and okay to get, for example, uh, mental health services. And yet it's crucial that we do. We need our colleagues who are professional in this realm to help and, you don't have to have a major mental mental illness to deserve ongoing uh, relief from your your stress, and and I think peer support can do that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I appreciated in the article too was that you mentioned it's really kind of also shifting how we think about what clinicians experience from. You know, I think you said it earlier, like I signed up for this, the physical and emotional exhaustion is just a part of the job and shifting away from that, that this is actually an occupational hazard. And I just really appreciated that that's another aspect of this to kind of shift our beliefs Mm -hmm. about, well, I'm supposed to feel this way, (laughs) right? To no, this isn't right. I shouldn't have to deal with this, right? Like there should be, there should be programs to support me and I should be able to process these things. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. We're not going to take the stress out of practicing medicine. I mean, the stress is our, is our responsibility to shoulder, 
absolutely. It, it, that part is what we signed up for, to be there for other people's suffering, to give of ourselves in, in, a, in a full way. That's, you can't, now there's some stressors, and we should talk about that, that I do feel uh, are needless and should, and, and actually that's part, that's another uh, aspect of peer support that I do want to mention, um, is what's the organizational responsibility to decrease actual stressors. But many of them are built in, um, and it's called patient care, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, seeing people ill and, um, you know, all sorts of things that, that that's, that is our job. And yet because we're human and because we care, we're going to have feelings about that. And just to your point, uh, Tracy, that we're trying, what we're saying is those feelings are normal. Mm-hmm. They're absolutely normal. And sometimes we need some kind of support in coping with them as they build up or as they're intense acutely that yes, it is part of the job. And yes, part of the job should be to receive support for stressors that we know are going to be present. Mm -hmm. So we don't get to this point of emotional exhaustion and physical exhaustion, right? Like exactly kind of knowing what, knowing what the signs are, what we call early warning signs, you know, so mm-hmm. that you can seek those resources, get that help, course correct, so that you don't end up in this place of exhaustion. And mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. I mean, and thinking about, you know, back when I trained and, and many, many years of, of practice, and I'm not going to say that I didn't buy into it because I think I did was, you know, there was such a badge of honor of uh, being sleep deprived, overworking, um, you know, giving really beyond what you felt capable of giving, just pushing forward, put your head down, get your work done. And of course, in moderation, that's key. You know, we, we need that, that spirit of like, I'm in there and I'm going to work unbelievably hard, but really at what point do you need to get some sleep? Do you need to process your emotions? Do you need to go to the doctor or the dentist? Like at some point you need those things. And that's the part we got wrong, right? And we really got that wrong and that we need to change. And it's the reason you need to go to the doctor sometimes. And the reason you need to get some time to exercise is because you deserve it. You're human. And it's not sustainable not to do those things in the long term. Definitely in the short term for, for many of us, we could we could do this for a while, but in the long term, no, not sustainable. That's right. Over time, it will fail you. So it's really an important message you're bringing. Exactly. You um, also mentioned several times in the article, the critical role of leaders within healthcare organizations and the importance of strengthening communication. Can you please expound on that for our listeners? When we think about well-being, we do have to think, the way I think of it is in, in three overlapping circles of Venn diagrams. So one is, you know, obviously personal resilience, very important. You, you, you know, you, you need to get sleep, all the things that I was mentioning earlier, um, very important. And also totally unfair to say, that's it. It's on you to do it at number one or number two to say, you should really do this. And then nothing about your work structure lets you get home in time to do any of it, right? That's just, you know, really not okay. So we think that the personal resilience circle is important. Uh, it's necessary, but totally insufficient alone. The, the, the second circle is relational, 
right? How, how are we with colleagues? Are we there to support each other? And as I mentioned earlier with this, just the way things are in terms of feeling pretty isolated. And of course, it's gotten worse with COVID because we literally are more isolated. Um, but it was, it was hard before COVID is can we connect in some kind of way with each other? And, you know, peer support is that way of it's very relational. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's, it is a co- literally a colleague providing that support. Oh, and let me go back to the resilience one. Peer support, actually, one of, one of the foundations of it is helping the colleague find uh, the, their own, what uh, Parker Palmer calls inner wisdom, is people do know what's good for them, but helping the peer actually access that, that's part of peer support. So it, you know, covers the personal resilience. It's certainly quite relational. It's a colleague, it's colleague driven. And the third is, and it really, really, I think in the past was overlooked is what are the organizational responsibilities in actually um, uh, in, in doing things programmatically to improve our well-being. And those things um, uh, are, are so important, but they can't do them. The organization can't do them if they don't really know what those things are. And the only way they're going to know what those things are is by really deeply listening to their, the people that they are leading. Yeah. And how do you do that? Like it, you know, uh, and, and that's not a throwaway question, right? That is, do you have processes where people feel welcome to, to into a conversation where the leaders are saying, help us help you. What are we doing that's facilitating your work? and helping care for patients. And what are we doing as an organization that's really getting in the way of it inadvertently? I mean, nobody sets up these things to, to mess, to mess up the process and then working on improving doing more of the things that are supporting the work and doing less of the ones that are undermining the work and the Mm -hmm. well-being. And so organizations, I think to need to really look in the mirror and answer the question that Sidney Decker always proposed. He's a a big guru in patient safety is you have a, a safe culture. You have a safe healthcare organization when the leaders know what's really going on. And do you have that communication or are there hierarchies and uh, processes and ways of, uh, of relating that absolutely squash people's ability to bring forth concerns and to be heard, right? And to partner with, with initiatives that would actually improve their lives. And I think that's absolutely key. Yeah, we would agree with that. And we're very focused on supporting the leaders because to your point, Joe, we know their role is critical in making every, you know, these things happen. Um, and we've really noticed that uh, in this before COVID and certainly now, you know, in the current COVID era that we're in, <laughs> that there's a lot of attention on the front line, as there should be for those frontline providers. But leaders are also struggling because of all of the stress and the pressure on them, and they're struggling themselves with their own mental health and well-being. And what perspectives would you have about supporting leaders as well as the front line? Michelle, that's a really important question. I actually was once uh, on a call with a, a wellness leader of a large academic health center, and we were talking about programmatic things that she had some questions about. And towards the end, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little peer support for you as a leader. You know, tell me what's going on with you in your world. And she actually just laughed and said, I've, I've entered the black hole of uh, hypocrisy 
that I, I haven't been taking care of myself at all. And it just, and so I did a little bit of like, you know, what would you, what could you do that would, you know, renew you and what, what would, would, what would you be willing to commit to? which I do in peer support. And Mm -hmm. it just reminded me that people leading, whether it's wellness initiatives or, you know, huge enterprises that are looking at, you know, all the competing priorities that leaders should have the same kind of, of collegial offer for that support. I think it's really, we, we tend to overlook leaders. And, you know, the other thing I do want to say, because I think in some ways what I've said before this is it might sound a bit adversarial, like sort of leaders, us versus them, you know, but having been a leader, I, I, I actually, I, you know, I think leaders walk into the organization wanting to do their best and they are juggling competing priorities that sometimes we can't see if we're not in their position. Um, I think the solution to that dilemma, which you all know much better than I do as experts in, in leadership, coaching and training is transparency with the people around them saying, I'm holding this burden. I'm holding this tension. Here are the things that we're wrestling with. Either this is why we can't meet this demand, or we've tried this and this works and this doesn't, is to share, um, in some ways, share with people what they're holding, not as a way of complaining like, well, you think you have it bad, you know, I have it worse, but but just being transparent um, and compassionate with when needs of others can't be met, those sorts of things. So I think that's very important that that communication is really, really going to help the leaders uh, be trusted by and trust those they're leading. So that's one thing. But I also do believe, you know, they're, they especially should be offered peer support. Um, and ideally, it would be from other leaders trained in, in how to do that, you know, which brings me to the question of like, well, what do you need to be a peer supporter? And, you know, I don't have a randomized control trial to say it has to look exactly like this. My experience has been that training is good to be a peer supporter. And the reason is because doing peer support is not the same as being there for a patient. Now it has some of the same qualities, empathic listening, you know, validation, those beautiful things that, that we're good at, right? Cause we take care of patients and we love it. Um, but there's a degree of fixing that is, is um, asked for and, and implied and uh, wanted by us as healthcare providers, as you come to me with a problem, sure. I'll, in partnership, I will be offering you options, et cetera, but you, you really, uh, really are expecting me to help fix the problem and not necessarily put it back on you. Um, and so, you know, f- for me as a surgeon, you know, if you come and you say, I have a Zinker's diverticulum, you know, I can take that away. <laughs> I, can make yeah. it, I can make you so you don't have any symptoms from that anymore. And that's your expectation. Not that I just sit there and probe all the reasons it's having a Zanker's diverticulum is making you miserable. So it's different from uh, being a peer supporter to, to, a, yeah, to a peer is quite different mm-hmm. in many ways from being mm-hmm. a healer to a patient, though, again, some similarities. So that that's one thing. And the other is, I think, we tend in our profession to really trust people who really know what it's like, right? So it's really hard to describe what it's like to 
you know, cause an interventional injury in, in you know, procedural interventional injury in a patient to someone who doesn't do that work. It's just hard. It's hard to understand it if you haven't been there. And we tend to, um, I'd say, trust and feel more comfortable being vulnerable with our emotions with people who get it because they have felt the same way. And so I do believe that if you're going to offer peer support to leaders, for example, those people need, first of all, need to be colleagues in the sense of understand, they don't have to know them even, but they have to understand leadership positions. Mm -hmm. Um, And they need to be trained to do it in a way that isn't modeling a different kind of uh, interaction. And then the last thing is, we tend to, uh, uh, the less argument I would say, or another argument for training is, we tend to be uncomfortable with other people's pain. As you know, as experts in coaching, you know, part of, yeah. of, of doing coaching and, and certainly doing mm-hmm. peer support is to some degree, you know, just letting go of the idea that you can fix it. Right. Mm-hmm. And yep. also that, you know, that letting go of the idea that just witnessing and, and helping people sort things out for themselves, but with a colleague is less than or not good enough. Because the fact is, giving your loving presence to a colleague is a huge gift. And we don't do that often, not because we're bad, but it just, that's not what, how things are set up to do. So just getting some training and how to do that, I think is really key. Yes. Uh, And we have found that with the leaders that we've been working with, you know, they just, they have gotten so much from being together and supporting each other and hearing each other's stories and recognizing they're not alone. And they just, they're like, we don't want this to end. Like we want to stay connected, you know? So yes. we offer them that opportunity to do that. And it is, it's, it's an amazing journey um, mm-hmm. to be at with them. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, you create. I mean, it sounds like, you know, one of the beautiful things that you're doing is you've created a culture, a little community of trust, I should say, a community of trust, like being mm-hmm. people, bringing people yes. together who by virtue of the the container that you've built uh, to to have them be able to talk without fear of repercussions. And then this atmosphere of psychological safety, which I really should mention more than I do because it's so foundational Mm -hmm. is we need psychological safety to actually get the good outcomes in patient care, but also I think to sustain, sustain our work. And so leaders can, and we can, and we can define ourselves as leaders much more broadly than this, you know, this CM, or the CEO is we can, as leaders of whatever groups that we have, we can mindfully and explicitly create psychological safety Mm -hmm. for people to be able to, in the right setting, not like in the middle of a code, um, to talk about how something Mm -hmm. is affecting them. That's so, so important. Yeah. We actually call our group the court of support. So (laughs) that's great. That's great. That's yeah, great. It is. It yeah. Is. I mean, Amy Edmondson's work around psychological mm-hmm. safety, I think is really transferable to, to the work that, that oh, yeah. we're all yeah. doing. It is. It is. So one more question for you. And this is something that we've come to know. You mentioned in your article, even that overemphasis on individual resilience. Like, you know, there's been this emphasis of you just buck up, figure it out right? Take care of yourself, get stronger, you can manage it, you know, go do some deep breathing or yoga or whatever, right? And that's really caused and what that does from a polarity intelligence perspective, if we look at this as a problem, it pushes us to the pendulum swing to the far side of the organization now needs to take care of things. And we've been talking about, I think throughout, it's, it's a both and really, 
the organization definitely needs to make changes to address the culture, to address the infrastructures and the support mechanisms. But if you have that in place and individuals don't take responsibility for showing up at a peer support, <laughs> for taking advantage of the resources, right? Um, and for managing the things that are outside of the organization that are impacting their well-being we won't have sustainable outcomes either. So it really is a both and. And we just wondered, you know, if you had any thoughts about or advice for clinicians that kind of empowering, right, to them, to empower themselves more, to be intentional, to make these choices, to balance the both and. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think um, I think Trace that is a very good point. It, it, it's almost never uh, either or. And this is a great example of um, that's what I was saying with the, my Venn diagram of those mm-hmm. three things. Yeah. It's really it, yeah. it really you don't want to ignore any of those um, in whatever you're doing. And you know, so on a on a you know, what can I do personally? For example, you know, one is do take my some responsibility for uh, showing up rested. Um, you know, nobody can come and hold my hand and force me to get into bed on time. Time and not watch another Netflix. Um, and so there, there's that, like, I have to take that personal responsibility. Um, so there's all sorts of things around personal resilience uh, that I should take responsibility for. And I am a partner in organizational change. Yeah. I'm a partner in it. I'm not a victim of it. I, I may feel that way. And there are times when I think in an organization, people are disempowered from engaging uh, with leadership and engaging in change. Um, I would, I would really, and this actually comes up in peer support because when we're listening to our colleague talk about handling an acute stressor. So just let's take, for example, an adverse event. One of the things we do isn't just talk about, well, what can they do, you know, more exercise or whatever. We, we certainly ask about that. And I'm not, you know, that, I'm not sure changing that at all. And we, we also talk about, well, you know, what, what, how, what's going on for you at work around this. And a lot of times people will talk about, well, I'm worried about uh, the event analysis how that's going to go, or I don't know how to talk to the family, is the peer supporter's job, and that's part of uh, the training, is to help them navigate the system and to see themselves as, you know, as having some agency in uh, contacting someone who they do trust, saying like, hey, you know, could somebody help me have a, 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 a potentially uncomfortable conversation with this family? Um, because I'm, I'm afraid to do it, but I know it's the right thing to do. And oftentimes what people find is, there is someone in their organization they could talk to about that. Or if they're worried about an event analysis, talking to a colleague saying, is there a way, you know, we can make sure that all sides are heard about this and that I feel respected and heard and not blamed and shamed. So I I think having some agency and, you know, not sort of not, being involved in what's called victimhood, which is that sense of everything happens to me and I can't do anything about it. Um, actually, sometimes you can. I'm not saying 100% of the time, I know you're not either, but is really trying in a constructive way to engage with leaders, to engage with the system in a way that is, you can be a huge advocate for yourself and others like, hey, this keeps coming up. It really needs to change. And so I, I do... You know, having been in leadership positions, I 
always valued people who wanted to partner in making change. You know, I was division chief. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely interested in hearing what the problems are. How do you think we should approach them? Let's, let's work together on this. And I love that. That was a a big part of what I loved about being division chief was that partnering um, and having people have agency is in, in making changes, Uh you know, understanding there are just some things that none of us really does have the power to change. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So true. Any last thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners before we close? I just, I think, um, you know, hopefully instilling hope um, that we, there is, first of all, things are are in some ways much better than they used to be. Um, And those, the changes that have come about that are much better than, you know, back in the day are things that, um, that we all did together in some ways. Sometimes it was sparked by a regulatory environment or what have you, but many, a lot of times it was our reaction to, okay, now you have to do this. Like, well, how are we going to do that? And so just looking at, you know, the future as something that we are not victims of. And as, you know, Parker Palmer has a beautiful quote about, you know, where it's co-creators, and he sees that this is a quote as a source of uh, awesome responsibility and profound hope for change and hope. It's hope that, you know, I really do hope. And I, I'm always hope infused um, <laughs> because I think I do think that the people who are in medicine and are just, you know, beautiful people um, and are really trying to do the right thing. And if we can provide structures and like I said, culture, the cultural environment, which is patterns mm-hmm. of relating, if we can provide that for each other and for ourselves, mm-hmm. then we're just going to keep getting better. So that's, that's, I guess I, I, I want to end on a, a note of, of hope. That's perfect. Tracy and I like to say that hope is having options present every day. And so that's a great way to close. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Wonderful conversation. It's just been fabulous yeah. to have you here. And I, it, You've inspired hope in me <laughs> through the conversation. I think it's just, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing and the hope that you're bringing to not just individuals, but organizations. And I think this is, it's a new day and we can chart the course, right? And yes, yeah. everybody plays a part. Yeah. So thank you so much for your efforts and what you're doing to transform healthcare and, and help support the resilience and well-being of those clinicians across the country. Well, thanks for inviting me, Michelle and Tracy, to have a conversation with you about this. Thanks, as always, for listening to Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. You can find show notes and links at our website, missinglogic.com forward slash new dash podcast. If you're the kind of leader who wants to help others, then share this podcast with your peers and other healthcare leaders. We're certain if you found value in it, they will too. Please share this on your social media channels and leave us a review in iTunes. If you don't know how to leave a review, you can find instructions at the end of the show notes. We'd also love to hear and answer your questions. So if you have some questions, you can email us at questions at missinglogic.com. And we may include your question in a future episode.